Welcome to High Gluttony. I'm Gretchen. And I'm Becca. And we're two ladies on an adventure. Listen along every 10 days or so as we cook a dish we like. Quest about cannabis education. Or chat with someone we respect. You can find more information about this episode at highgluttony.com. Thanks for joining us, gluttoneers. Off we go. Let's get to it. Hello, Gretchen. I'm so excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm okay. What have you been up to? So James and I did another hike in Red Rock Canyon, and we came across something that I found super fascinating, which is that there now there only exists one version of this one type of fish. But at some point, There were a bunch of warm springs all across Southern Nevada, and there were fish who lived only in these warm springs. They were, they're like little teeny fish. And there's one species left called the Pahrump pool fish. And it only lives in this teeny tiny lake in the middle of this weird canyon in outside of Las Vegas. And I don't even understand how do fish get into warm springs in the middle of the fucking desert in the first place? How is that a thing? So that was really interesting. (laughs) That is fascinating. I think it has to do with evolution as far as how they get there. This is so weird to me. This is so interesting. That's what I've been up to. But we have a lot to talk about today. So I'm not gonna dilly-dally with any more pool fish information because we're gonna spend some time today talking about Fanny Farmer. We were super excited after our Parker House rolls, and we're actually drinking some hot chocolate from her cookbook. Because I bought the original version of the Fanny Farber cookbook, which was originally the Boston Cooking School School cookbook this week because I needed it. And also got the present day version of the cookbook here. So we are fully ready to talk about Fanny Farmer and We also got a lot of information from an amazing podcast called History Chicks. Yes. Who did an amazing deep dive on Fanny Farmer and her time in the world and everything else. It's very comprehensive and very interesting. And we will definitely be listening to this podcast going forward. Absolutely. We both were immediately like, add this to our list. (laughs) So we're ready to talk about Fanny. We've done some research. But for that, though, what are you smoking while we relax and talk about our new favorite friend, Fanny? A little bit of jelly bean, you know, the classic, the end of the era of jelly bean. I have a very little bit left. So just going to have a little jelly bean this afternoon. That feels perfect. It's a good, mellow, conversational Mm -hmm. kind of weed. So that's perfect. And then I'm using a pen again. And this time I have... Australian thunderfuck. And that's a fun thing to say, but it also has lots of lemonade. So I'm feeling super relaxed and my jaws unclenching a little bit. And I'm just ready to get into this because not only are we talking about Fanny Farmer, we are launching something new for us. And we've hinted at this previously, but we're doing something now called a chef quest. So we're pivoting our can of quest just a little bit. And we're going to try to do some deep dives on chefs that we come across who we think are pretty interesting 
maybe a little under the radar. Gretchen, tell me how you felt about coming across Fanny in the first place. Because I didn't know anything about her until what, two months ago or a month ago? Same. And that feels like a crime because she did a lot for cooking and she was really passionate about it and essentially devoted her life to it and didn't really get started until way later, you know? Yeah, she was basically in her 30s when her real professional career took off. So there's still hope. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty, plenty. I think she was 38 when she wrote the first cookbook. Yeah. So we're right in line. But yeah, I felt a little cheated, actually, because the one primary woman that they really brought up in culinary school was Caterina de' Medici. And she, you know, lived so long ago. And Fanny Farmer was just in the last century an American. I'm like, how can you call the culinary school of America and not <laughs> talk about American chefs? I felt very cheated. And I'm excited to take on this this challenge of tracking down some of the female contributors to the modern cooking universe. Yeah, exactly. We both had not heard of her, which for Gretchen is more surprising than for me, honestly. (laughs) But I'm sure if we asked our grandmothers, they would probably know her name. My mom knew who she was. Your mom, of course, right. At least knew about the candy. So we're excited. We got super inspired by Fanny. We're going to spend some time now going forward, just investigating female chefs and their contributions. We wanted to talk about her. Obviously the Parker house rolls were really good and the great recipe to follow. So we were like, okay, let's dig in. But I guess before we talk specifically about Fanny, maybe we should set the scene for what's happening in the world at this time. What we're really going to be spending all of our time talking about right now is that 1890 to 1900 time period. This is really the thick of the Victorian era. And another resource that we came across, well, they referenced it in the History Tricks podcast, is a show that you can rent. It's a PBS special. You can get it on Amazon. But Christopher Kimball of America's Test Kitchen, who- and Milk Street now, I think is his, his main thing that he's doing these days. Okay. And Milk Street. As we know, this is a person who is very meticulous, does a lot of recipe testing, and has a lot of opinions. And so he decides to create one of the 12 course menus suggested in Fanny's cookbook. And he's going to create it in the style of the era. So he invites some friends over, but mostly gets a couple of other chefs to spend almost two years practicing and preparing and testing this 12-course menu. Kind of wild. It's a lot of work, especially when they were talking about all how they also acquired all the dishware. And I was like, oh my God, this is one of the most pretentious things I've ever watched. they They really went above and beyond from even tracking down a Victorian era stove and building the fire in the stove and cooking on that fire and all the detriments that came there after that to boiling their own calves feet to make jello. I mean, they really did it all. They were very authentic about it. They were insane, but they were authentic (laughs) about it. Right. So we watched that and that gave us some insight into what was happening at the time. And in particular, we're talking about what was going on in Boston because that's where Fanny was from and that's where she spent her time. 
So what's happening at this moment is oyster houses are really popular. So you're seeing a lot of restaurants with French focus. Jello is a big thing. Imported mushrooms are a big thing. And the gin cup is making lots of alcoholics just ruin their lives. (laughs) Gin cups specifically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's the Victorian era, there's these rigid rules and expectations of behavior. But it's also at this time that women are starting to work outside of the house for the first time and get a little bit of independence that way. In general, middle-class people are eating roast beef, turnips, pickles, baked beans. But a lot of wealthy people are experimenting. And because of the location in Boston and being right on a harbor, they could get a lot of cool things. And so you're seeing things like roast lion. And I guess like really rich people are having dinner parties where they're eating on horseback and oh, inside, 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 inside Inside. the other part of that. Right. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love horses. No, just no. Like why? And then scandalously having naked ladies jump out of big cakes. So there's this dichotomy of rigidity but then if you have the money, you can do whatever, whatever you, want. you want. I mean, and that hasn't really changed, but a little bit more social structure behind it in public, I guess. Everything had to be fancy and proper. One of the interesting movements around this time is trying to ascend above having a physical body. So that you didn't need to eat all the food on your plate because you were above hunger. So you ate what you just what you needed to. And if you ate everything on your plate, then you must have been some sort of crazy glutton. Welcome to our club. (laughs) So you mentioned you can't finish anything on your plate. Maybe we should talk about a few of the other weird, interesting rules of eating at this time or rules of dining. Never finish anything on your plate. No bite marks on your food. So if you take a bite of steak, you have to cut off that piece from the main portion of the steak and eat that. You can't Do anything that leaves a bite mark on your plate, because how dare you show you have teeth? I had a really hard time when they were talking about that, because I was like, what are you talking about? And it's really just making sure you're, it's not just that there are no bite marks. It's that you must cut everything before you bring it to your mouth. So it must only be in tiny bite-sized pieces. So this is where we get a lot of those really fussy rules that people have about silverware, et cetera, et cetera. It's all from this shit. Like how you can't pick up your roll and just bite into it. You have to take a piece of your Parker house roll off and then eat it. You're also not allowed to talk about politics or anything that could hinder someone's smooth digestion. In other words, no, no pissing anybody off. (laughs) These days you can't talk about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much if it exists, somebody's going to have an opinion about it and be angry. They were quick. They said no more than two hours. This is wrapped up you're out the door two hours so huge elaborate dinners they've got the servers are working fast to make these meals happen time limits i don't like it (laughs) yeah we don't obviously we're only going to take two hours and then four and a half hours later we're like maybe we're done we should probably do these other things but maybe we're done (laughs) there was one last dinner rule which was interesting which was to ignore all spills So if you knock your wine over, you're not allowed to acknowledge it. 
one of those super helpful and fast servants will come around and clean it up, but you're not allowed to talk about the fact that someone just flat out fucking knocked their whole wine bottle over. <laughs> Mistakes don't happen. We just don't acknowledge them. This is all just examples of what was happening in this era. And with cooking, they were using those cast iron stoves and those were either coal or wood burning. So you had to get really comfortable with creating your own fire. And Gretchen pointed out there's the whole step in one of the cookbooks, one of Fanny's cookbooks about, what was it? How to make a fire. Just fire is the title of the section. (laughs) So there is a whole section in here about how to build and maintain a fire for cooking. You just had to guess what temperature it was at. You just had to know, okay, this is the sort of the right temperature for bread. This is the right temperature for meat. This is the right temperature for making a cake. It's just guessing. It's totally just guessing. You just had to really get good and be very observant. And this is also a time where everything's made from scratch. People are spending six to seven hours a day cooking. And they, Christopher Kimball said today, that's about an hour. It can take up to days, several days to prepare one component of a dish. Right before this, the intention of cooking really was to preserve food because there wasn't a lot of consistency in what sizes you'd get of things. You'd get a huge side of beef or a various amount of beans. And so you'd have to preserve some of that for later. But in Fanny's time, a couple of things are starting to happen, which is that you're starting to see standardized kitchen equipment. You're starting to see mass produced kitchen equipment and you can finally get things in smaller portions. So you can get like a jar of something, which makes it a lot easier to experiment with things and explore things. And like we said, because they're in Boston and they're right on a harbor, they're getting a lot of fresh stuff and they're getting a lot of new and exciting things. There was actually a massive farmer's market that had over a hundred stalls and it's still around today to some iteration, or this was pre-COVID at least. So you could get almost anything you wanted. And then I don't know if you remember, but there was that one retailer, like a food retailer, SS Pierce, Hmm. and they had over 4,000 items that you could order. (laughs) So cool. And it said like, you could get baking powder, you could get coffee, you could get yeast, you could get specialty cheese and vegetables from Europe or California. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and they're shipping in things because you have railroads at this time. So they're shipping stuff like salmon from the West Coast. A lot more opportunity to to eat things you haven't eaten before and have them on a consistent basis. I guess there was a really popular magazine called Home Furnishing Review, and you could order a refrigerator and a coffee mill and a raisin seeder. All these things we take for granted now, like we get raisins without seeds. Yeah. You had to seed it. (laughs) It's funny because I was reading the Fannie Farmer cookbook, the 18... 96 edition. Every time there's ra- raisins, it's like stone the raisins. Oh yeah. They didn't have seedless grapes. Wow. So-, so then speaking of, you know, eating stuff, but also taking a lot of time to get to the point of eating that stuff, <laughs> should we go through what that 12 course menu was and give an example of like what a fancy dinner was at this time? I'm going to point out that although they based a lot of this on stuff that she did, their recipes were quite modern. Although I do think that, especially in Victorian times, they did use a lot of game meat. So I do think that that to that end, this is pretty accurate. But some of the stuff I was like, you're taking a bit of liberty here. (laughs) 
they did point out that the salmon dish was not authentic at all. They said it, <laughs> they used to have long cook times and a gross white sauce or something. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, we can't make a, like, like a poached fish with white sauce. And I'm there. I'm there with them. I don't sure. want to poach fish either. <laughs> they started with a first course of oysters, which were served on a elaborate ice sculpture with very simple dressing. I thought it was and... funny they said the oyster was America's first fast food because yeah. you just had to shuck it and serve it, basically. <laughs> and I completely grossed you out with telling oh, you about yeah. what oysters really were. Ooh, and... Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, those are raw people. You're eating raw oysters. <laughs> Alert. <laughs> Alert. Lots of people like that, Becca. We have to not judge. <laughs> I know. I just wanted to give them a heads up. I'm just kidding. They were all like famous chefs on that dinner. So there was, they all knew what they were getting into. But yep. okay, first course, oysters. Oysters served on a labyrinth ice sculpture, and that was part of the cocktail hour as well. They sat down, and the first course was mock turtle soup. Tell me about this. <laughs> I think it's really funny, especially in modern times. I don't think we have a lot of cuisines that eat turtles. I think part of that is just they're not easy to deal with. But especially back in this time, apparently it was quite the delicacy. They were so always trying inexpensive. They were always trying to figure out a way to make something not quite the right thing, but similar to it. So to get the same experience for mock turtle soup, you use an entire cow's head to like make the what? soup. Yeah. You boil the whole thing. Although you do have to remove the eyes and the brain because it makes it gross. <laughs> and fair warning, if you watch the show, it they showed all of this. So you're yeah. going to legit see like big whole gross cow eyes. Yeah. yeah, and big gross brain. cow eyes. Yeah, Whoa. it's really gross. Yeah, and then pulling the the pulling the eyes out of the skull and plopping them down on the counter. And there's a whole lobster part that's just kind of weird. So yeah, all right, keep going. So if things are expensive, you're looking for substitutes. And in this case, someone figured out that cow head can mock the flavor or taste of turtle. Yeah, weird. <laughs> So next we have a rissoles, which are a food going back to Roman times. And really they're just a fried turnover kind of thing. Mm, they have a, a puff pastry dough that they're made with and uh, have a meat filling. The one from Fanny Farmer's cookbook is a chopped cooked chicken and ham filling. So then they had uh, lobster a la American, which they took raw lobsters and split them in half and then cooked them in a flavorful sauce. And next up, we had a saddle of venison that was larded with salt pork. And they, they use this really cool contraption, which I was like, I wonder if I could find one of these. Now I just want one because it's cool. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> but it's like a long needle that you grab a bit of salt pork in the end. And then you can like pull this long needle through and leave a little bit of salt pork under the, just under the outside of the layer of meat that you're larding. That's because venison and game meat is often really lean. So you're yes. adding that pork fat and that's larding. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've never but heard that before. Specifically that style where they've threaded it through the meat is larding. And yeah, tra tragedy struck because they got the fire too hot while they were cooking the venison and burnt all the ends of the salt pork. And so they had to like cut all the little ends off the salt <laughs> pork that was sticking out of the venison and, and then serve it. But apparently it was fine. Then they did uh, the wood grilled salmon. That was why they had to get the oven so hot was for the salmon. And fried baby artichokes, which were quite the rage at this time because it was a 
rich person's food. So if you could get that, you were very fancy indeed. Then we have a, what's the word I'm looking for? Palate cleanser course. Like a sorbet. It's a sorbet. So they said Canton frozen punch. And it was basically a ginger sorbet. Then they did some roast goose. Then we had a series of three Victorian jellies, which (laughs) they made the jelly in the original style by boiling calves feet and getting all the gelatin out of the feet and then flavoring it with various things. So they made their own gelatin. And they had all these elaborate molds and (laughs) the way like processes of pouring them in, in different layers and keeping all the textures the same. And it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, it's tricky. Then you had a mandarin cake, which as far as I could tell was just a layer cake that consisted of like two or three different cakes. And then um, little like amuse-bouche type desserty things that went on the side. And then uh, they finished up with some coffee, cheese, crackers, and bonbons. They always finished their meals with little candies and shit after they had coffee and cheese. That's a lot of food. It's a fuck ton of food. 12 course dinner is a lot. Yeah. 12 course dinners a lot. And we were joking earlier because they, like we said, they spent almost two years perfecting these recipes or interpreting them. And then they kind of messed up on the venison and kind of messed up on the results and they were able to save it. But it just reminded us that like, you never know what's going to happen when you're cooking and you can practice a thousand times and still something can go wrong and you just got to troubleshoot in the moment. It kept reminding me of like, a restaurant wars episode of top chef where they have to like make the menu and then like serve it and all that frenzy it was almost like a competition show or something i mean it was they were trying to do it in a certain amount of time they were trying to get it done quick 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 it was it was pretty amazing to to watch and experience that style of cooking again totally I feel like I have a pretty good sense now of what food was like, what cooking was like around this time. Should we get into who Miss Fanny Farmer was and what her early life was like? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's get into it. Let's do it. (laughs) So Miss Fanny Farmer was born on March 23rd, 1857 in Boston. Her family would later move to Medford, but she was the oldest of four girls. She had red hair and was described often as like spicy or just a little bit like unexpected a little. I think people (laughs) were always a little bit surprised by Fanny. Her family was Unitarian, which is a religion that also emphasizes science. And this is, this will become super super important to Fanny and will be reflected in the way she cooks and teaches later. But her family also really encouraged education. And it was really important for them that all of the girls go through high school. And this was a time when only about 10% of Americans had high school diplomas. This was also a time when most families couldn't really afford to send every kid to college. So you'd pick one and put all of your eggs in that basket. And for the farmer family, that was Fanny. Except when she turned 16, something happened that would really change her life forever. And that was that they're pretty sure she developed polio. And polio was super rare at this time. It would be another 20 years before the first major outbreak would happen. And then it would still be another 100 years before the polio vaccine existed. So people didn't really know exactly what was going on with Fanny. But one day she woke up with no feeling in her legs and was basically unable to walk. So all of those intentions of her going to college and being like 
that the educational star for the family fell out the window because months went by and she still couldn't walk for a while. So years, basically she couldn't walk for years. I I didn't realize it was years. I, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, because it was like a whole 10 years before she could really walk again. And, and I mean that even that recovery is pretty incredible because yeah, not everybody gets that back after they have polio. <laughs> totally. But and- I think her family was really supportive. Like they would always help her walk. Like she wasn't neglected. I think so. She got a lot of care and I think that was why she was able to eventually recover was because they actually took care of her and put energy into get having her have a comfortable life at the very least Mm -hmm. and that was also unique because this was a time like we're not good to disabled people now but they certainly were not good to disabled people then like Gretchen said you were written off in a lot of ways but Fanny's family really just didn't let that happen fast forward 10 years she's kind of able to start walking around again and the family moves back to Boston she does have a limp though and she will have that limp for the rest of her life but because she can work again she wants to start working this is again a time when women are starting to work outside of the house so Fanny becomes something called a mother's helper like a nanny but kind of like kitchen staff for a pretty prominent family called the Shaw family in Boston And it's really here where she can start practicing cooking and she starts teaching the kids of the Shaw family how to cook. I didn't know if you wanted, if you were going to add something, it looks like you're going to I was trying to, yeah, I was trying to figure out if I was going to say something. Yeah. I mean, that was really where she developed her, like she first sparked that love of teaching because that just became her whole life eventually. But I don't think she could have seen at the time how far that would take her. Right. Right. And the, the mother, Mother Shaw, I don't know her name, was really encouraging a Fanny to keep cooking. And at this time, something called the Boston Cooking School is forming. Fanny is encouraged by Mrs. Shaw to attend. And this was a school that also didn't require a high school diploma. So this was pretty lucky for Fanny that she could get in there with where she was at not being able to finish high school. She really discovered a passion for it when she was working for the Shaws. And it's when she's at the Boston Cooking School that she fucking like thrives. She like loves the challenge. She loves the rigor. This is like a really hard school. And after her first year, she's already hired on as an assistant principal and they have her teaching classes like within a year. Just crazy. Just crazy. I'm like, this would never happen today. (laughs) I know. I know. And what a bummer that it can't because so much talent is out there. And just because you didn't go to high school or you didn't have the exact path that someone's looking for, you shouldn't ever be written off. But she's super passionate. That passion is coming through in her classes. Remember we said she's kind of spicy and this is when she's like really letting that come out. All of the students are loving it and she's really making a big impact on the school at this time. We had mentioned that standardized measurements are something that's happening now. And up to this point, a lot of recipes are just passed down like parent to child. And those are typically based on what was in your grandmother's kitchen at the time of her creating the recipe. So if she had one cup that she used as her one cup measurement, that may not be the same cup that Gretchen had at her house. So there wasn't really consistency 
knowing what you were cooking with or knowing that the recipe I have, I could give to Gretchen and she could replicate. Fanny gets really excited about these standardized measuring cups, but what she does is take it a step further and insist on leveling the ingredient in that cup just scraping off that excess pile at the top. And what what did they say she would always say? Take up your case knife and level it off. <laughs> yeah, so she is big on no guesstimation and measurements. She would hate my style of cooking. <laughs> I am very loose. But <laughs> Fanny was not. Fanny was really like, let's make it consistent. You know, everybody's got the same equipment to work with. So let's make sure everybody can make this dish. So she was definitely one of the founding people of that principle. And again, the Boston Cooking School is becoming just this really important place. And the principal at the time publishes a book called the what to do and what not to do in cooking. And basically this was like a textbook of all of the recipes that students were trying or that they were teaching, but they wanted to put them in one place. That became the first published book out of the Boston Cooking School. And this is at a time when Fanny's there. So she's like a part of all of this energy and excitement that's happening, but she's taking everything a step further and saying like, let's get consistent and let's Mm -hmm. make repeatable results. Fanny is obviously amazing at everything she's doing at the school. And at this point, she's 36. So she's been there for five years and she becomes the principal. The current principal leaves and they ask Fanny to do it. And so she's there for another two years before she decides to get serious about making her own cookbook using that what not to do book for inspiration. She assembles this cookbook. She goes to the publisher who published that previous book from the Boston Cooking School, and they say, no, we don't have any faith that this book will do well. We're not going to publish it unless you can come up with the money to do it yourself. And she does. She comes up with the money, but a super smart thing she does is keep the copyright on the book. Hugely important. This has been a problem for other people. (laughs) Well, and it makes sense because she'd put in her own money to fund it. All the more reason to make sure you're getting some of that back or hopefully way more than that back. I wonder if it was really more of an oversight on the publisher's part being like not knowing to that they needed to keep the copyright, you know? Sure. They just thought it wouldn't do well, like that it would be so poorly done that it didn't matter. But uh, what? She sold like couple thousand of them right off the bat (laughs) yeah extremely well like for being first released they they were all shocked yeah so like it's first released in January of 1898 but it is called the Boston Cooking School Cookbook of 1896 so a couple years difference there between publication date and title but most people would know this as the 1896 Boston Cooking School Cookbook it did have 1500 recipes and then it was reprinted twice in that first year and one of the thing that really distinguishes this is that because of Fanny's affection or appreciation for science and efficiencies she really gives a lot of the science behind the cooking a lot of the history of food and she's providing really clear and clean instructions she's giving the ingredients at the top and the steps at the bottom. And these are recipes that are challenging people in new ways for the first time. This is all new stuff. And now we take it for granted, but it's really Fanny who set up what our modern idea is of a cookbook and a recipe. 
She also was interesting for the time where she was focused on what we should eat, like in quantities and that sort of thing. So she does have some general guidelines. And there's even a section in this book, because she did go on to write a book later that was specifically geared toward cooking for sick people. And so there's actually a whole section in her first book about cooking for sick people. And so she was really focused on that nutrition thing and making sure that people could recover because food is so important to recovery. So she, she seemed to just know that that was a really big part of making sure that people could get healthy again. And it's obviously resonating because the book becomes so popular that they end up changing the title to the Fanny Farmer cookbook. And while the book is succeeding in popularity, Fanny is also skyrocketing in popularity to the point where the book just becomes known as the Fanny Farmer. And it's only second to the Bible in popularity in people's homes. She says, it's my wish that it may not only be looked upon as a compilation of tried and tested recipes, but that it may awaken an interest through its condensed scientific knowledge, which will lead to deeper thought and broader study of what to eat. And this book does... Yeah, and it really does teach you how to eat. She also listed menu ideas. Like we said, that fancy 12 course one was in there, but she had menu ideas for everything. She had advice on how to set a table, how to plan a meal. She had the equipment list on there. And she also would include an ad for the school at the back of the book. So every copy of this book is selling. She's advertising the school she's working at. She's so smart. So smart. So smart. So a couple of classics from this book are the Parker House Rolls that we know, scalloped potatoes, and waffles. And it wasn't really until the 1930s that the joy of cooking would replace the Fanny Farmer cookbook as like your go-to household cookbook. And Julia Child herself said that that cookbook was the primary reference in her own, like that her mother used in her own kitchen. Because that that was one of the major things about it, is it that it was more than just a cookbook. It was like a reference on everything. So you could just go to it to find whatever information. I mean, so it's got, of course, I've now marked so many pages. I don't remember where all the things are that I wanted to look at. Yeah, Gretchen just got this book this week, a couple of days ago. And now I'm, she yesterday. has a it got it yellow, yesterday. she got it yesterday. And she's got ye- like a hundred yellow stickies <laughs> all over this book. <laughs> But I mean, it tells you how to can stuff. It has a whole chart for like cooking temperatures and cooking times and helpful hints to the young housekeeper. So it's a really, it's a compendium of, is that the right word? Sure. (laughs) A collection of good knowledge for anybody that's cooking or anybody that's trying to run a house. So I think that was really all, because it also led into the domestic sciences as well. So she was at the very beginning of the the domestic sciences as its own thing in this world. As Fanny's popularity is rising, she's starting to lecture around the world. People are like trying to see her like one-on-one for a private cooking class. She's giving lectures to doctors about scientific principles of nutrition. She's starting to add to nursing program curriculum with those advancements in nutrition that Gretchen was talking about. She also writes a second cookbook, which is just a book about chafing dishes and cookery. She ends up leaving the Boston cooking school around this time. It feels a little bit like she wanted to focus more on the creativity and like the joy of cooking and writing recipes than teaching just the science over and over again when she's 42. So now we're talking 1902. She leaves the Boston cooking school and sets up her own school. 
And sadly for the Boston cooking school, that pretty much was the end of the story for them. They closed about a year after Fanny left. That's how much star power and influence she had at the Boston cooking school, <laughs> which is huge. Oh my gosh. I so wish she, I, yeah. I wonder if it was more like, well, we want to be where Fanny is more than like, we don't want to be at your school. It's like, we want to go to her school. Yeah. And it becomes a pretty much overnight success. Yeah. She ends up having 10 teachers, a whole admin staff, four huge classrooms. But then what she does that's really unique is that she sets up a lot of different levels. So there's different audiences. There's classes for nurses. There's classes for teachers. There's classes for homekeepers. There's different ways to feed a child, an infant, a teenager. There's this really interesting and unique, like comprehensive approach to cooking. And so she's offering tons of different classes. She even takes a scaled approach with her tuition so that it's based on different different times of the day. It's based on different classes or courses. And she's anticipating like, if you're a wealthy lady, you can come like, you know, Monday afternoon or something and learn. And that class is going to be more expensive than like the Saturday morning one where you're learning how to feed, you know, six kids or something as a nanny. So she's taking like all these really interesting approaches to it. Although I will say I could not find any information on the demographic of the people and making the assumption that this is Boston at this time. I'm not going to guarantee that people of color, that black women or anyone else who wasn't white was able to attend the classes, but I couldn't validate that. She also was doing some institutional cooking type classes and as part of that. So that it's really interesting because she did start the uh, idea of institutional nutrition and cooking. So cool. And then because she doesn't have enough on her plate, she starts a column with her sister in a popular magazine while continuing to teach each classes. Oh, you and know, then, sometimes you just don't know when to stop. <laughs> yeah. Like was she a workaholic or she just like enjoyed it so much she couldn't stop? <laughs> Hopefully the latter. I know, right. But we are closing in on her last days here and her last contributions. Like Gretchen said, she ended up focusing the later part of her years on supporting nutrition and health for people who were sick or convalescent. She ends up writing food and cookery for the sick and convalescent. And because of her own experience, she knew the importance of nutrition on healing and providing support for your body and your system. She approached all of this with that scientific lens. And so she was able to really drill down into nutrition in a way that hadn't really been a part of recipes before or a part of the way we talk about food and the body and healing. Well, and um, she also wanted people to make things nice for the person who was ill so that it's not just about nutrition as far as like you're feeding the actual body. Use like fancy plates so they have something to look at. But yeah. she had all that experience. I feel like she had so much experience when she was younger being ill herself that she would know. Even those little touches can make a big difference to somebody that's not feeling well. You know, it's like you don't have a lot of energy. You're not make it a lot of entertainment for yourself. Totally. And she had this order of importance with serving dishes or creating dishes for the sick. For her, it was sight, taste, temperature, digestibility, food value, and cost. And that flipped that whole world on its side because before it had been cost, digestibility, and mm. then you're looking at sight and taste last. But 
sight being the most important thing comes back to what you're saying, Gretchen, about just her own experiences contributing to like her wanting to make it better for other people and knowing the first thing you do is look at food with your eyes. It's pretty special. I think it's a pretty important legacy of hers. Mm -hmm. She said this was her most important book and she wanted every home in America to have a copy. Guess I better get one. I know. She does go on to publish four more cookbooks, including (laughs) a revised edition of her first one, a book called What to Have for Dinner, a book called Catering for Special Occasions, and then her last book published in 1912 was called A New Book of Cookery. So while she's writing those books, she's still lecturing, she's still creating recipes, and in 1908, she loses the use of her legs. And so she's in a wheelchair for the remaining seven years of her life. She does also also suffer a minor stroke at that point, and then... At age 57, on January 15th, 1915, Fanny Farmer passed away. And it wasn't until 2018 that the New York Times, much like us, became aware about Fanny's impact. And they published an obituary that we actually used for reference today. But it feels like she had this huge, huge impact. And then people really just like forgot about her. (laughs) So... The Boston cooking school before it went out of business was super important in setting up what Gretchen said as like the domestic science movement or the home economics movement as we would know it later. But Fanny was a huge part of that. The generations of people learned how to cook because of her. And she taught the people that would go on to teach basically everyone else in America how to cook. So she's amazing. She's so incredible. And I when I was going through it and just reading about her like interest in efficiency and repeatability and her like wanting to list out all the ingredients. I kept feeling like she was like a combo of you and me, like (laughs) wanting to like know every piece of the recipe and wanting it to be like really even. And like, we don't always end up following that or using it, but we like it when it's there. (laughs) Yes. I also I think one of her main principles was like writing water in recipes. And I'm like, yes, nice. Somebody appreciated that before I got annoyed about it. Right. And it just goes to show the importance of equity in everything. Because if Fanny hadn't had her own experiences of being disabled, she never would have been able to contribute in the same way or with that same thoughtfulness and empathy. And so if we only have able-bodied people creating everything, we're losing all this opportunity to up-level experiences for everybody and in particular make them more equitable for the people who really need it. Her impact is so profound and I just want to keep exploring her in this time. And I'm I'm like flabbergasted with my like love for Fanny. it's really nice to know and to get a different view of like life at this point, instead of always feeling like there weren't women really making history around this time. And to find out that, no, we just don't know about the women making history, you know? So it's it's deeply frustrating. You know, anytime I get plus, I get flustered about the patriarchy, but (laughs) it's, really interesting and like one of the more satisfying things for me to learn was how many women were actually out there getting science degrees and going to school it wasn't as 
like wit, like crazy at the turn of the 19th century as some things that led me to believe because mm-hmm. there were like women being admitted to MIT and that there was the, this whole like women empowerment and women education movement that was happening and that it wasn't shallow or had you know no consequence that it branched into every part of education and lives and I think that's what I'm trying to say yeah exactly and I don't know if we said it but the the Boston cooking school was founded by a group of women who wanted to provide a space for people for women in particular who were completing high school or were completing college but then the world wasn't set up for them to use those degrees they really wanted to set up a place for women to come to to get an education to then take that back out to either have independence or to be able to help support their families in new ways fanny being a part of that time period and then her like profound contribution on the boston cooking school just amplified that out like a hundredfold and yeah it's just like it's fun to to learn and know what was happening. And then it's also discouraging that we haven't made more progress because <laughs> we're still very much dominated by men. Yeah. White men. <sighs> White men. But Fanny was amazing. I'm so glad we came across her. The Parker House rolls were awesome. This brandy hot chocolate is delicious. Amazing. And yeah. I'm forever changed by our friend Fanny. Our friend Fanny. The fantastic Franny Farmer. Fanny, yeah. sorry, I really want her name no. to be Franny. <laughs> it's the Fanny Farmer. It's that, yeah, it's like the, the F-F, R's. Yeah. Right. yeah, it's hard. Yeah. You need the R. You need the R and the Franny. It needs to be yeah. Franny, not Fanny. I guess we should spell her name really quick. It's F-A-N-N-I-E, F-A-R-M-E-R. We used a lot of we used a lot of references and resources. We will put those up on highgluttony.com. And maybe share a few, a few of our learnings on Instagram. But thanks for joining us, Glittoneers. This was so fun. We do have a lot of listeners in the Boston area. So I hope you're enjoying this. I hope so. Yeah. And you can look for a few more of these to come out. At least a few. As many as we can find. <laughs> or we have the energy to do. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> there's also that whole cooking thing we want to do. And someday oh. we will get back to Tana Quests. But for now, we present you... Fanny Farmer. Fanny Farmer. Woo! I didn't even hear those clowns. No? No. No. Sorry. Fanny. I can't can't hear them either. (laughs) No.